and welcome to this week's episode of They Don't Make Them Like They Used To. Tonight we are joined by a host of stars of yesteryear. Honestly, the star wattage on tonight's show is enough to power a 1940s premiere at the Leicester Square Empire. We have James Stewart. Hey. Hey. Yeah, that's right. We've got Carrie Grant, Gene Arthur, Howard Hawks, Rita Hayworth, and joining with these old masters, we have Dame Judy Dench and Billy Connolly. After Rebecca last week, quite enough of you. After Rebecca last week, we continue an advertent series of movies in which you never see the title character. Joe gives us another crash course in great Hollywood film composers, and Sharon kicks us off with a new feature called I Love Movies. If you listen but if you listen to that and think about it for a second, you will see what we did there. My name is Tosin and I am your host for the next hour of movie magic pre-1980 style. With me in the studio are Sean. Hiya. Joe. Hey. And Sharon. Hello. And joining us through the miracle of modern technology, or would have been, would have been a couple of patients in the of uh, in the hospital. But anyway, we'll explain that. So first up this week, as we walk down movie memory lane, is Sharon's choice. Every week we choose a film that we think is a bona fide classic of cinema. Obviously, as we said earlier, picked pre nineteen eighties, and this week is Sharon. So Sharon, what have you chosen for us this week? This week I've picked an absolute corker. I think in Harvey, starring James Stewart. Ooh, Harvey, not bad. So cool. And um, so, can you just tell us what is Harvey about? Harvey is about a man, James Stewart, who has a his best friend is called Harvey, and unlike any other person's best friend, Harvey is a six foot three and a half inch <laughs> puka who takes the form of a rabbit, a big white rabbit, and a puka apparently <laughs> is from Celtic mythology. He's a mischievous spirit or fairy who inhabits the form of a giant animal always a big animal and he's always amiable but very cheeky and very naughty just imagine the pitch meeting for that film (laughs) (laughs) just imagine how they got that made yeah because i'm thinking right okay this is a film i saw it for the first time last night it's i've heard about it for years and it's a film that lives and dies on james stewart's performance yes because obviously the 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 they the f- you you spend a large part of this film, I think, wondering whether this guy is actually okay in the head, because you, he walks around and he he essentially mimes walking around with a six foot, what was it? Six, three and a half, six foot three and a half inch three, rabbit. The six foot three and a half inch rabbit, and like you know, opening doors for him and everything like that. He carries a hat with two holes in it, so you he can fit his ears through without squashing his ears. He walks around with two coats because it's yeah. <laughs> everything like. Okay, so and a lot of things is like if you search Harvey, there's a lot of well, people talk about James Stewart's performance yeah. and also a lot of the quotes that he comes up with. Yeah. So what we have here is that we have a list of quotes from James, well, from the movie all of James Stewart, all about Harvey. So here we go. Is this 348? Yes, it is. I've got a special delivery here. Oh, that sounds interesting. The Dowds. Oh, the Dowds, my name. Elwood P. Sir, let me uh, give you one of my cards. Oh, that won't be necessary, sir. Just uh, sign right here. Beautiful day. Oh, every day is a beautiful day. Thank you. Nice man. Come on. You know, we all must face reality, Dowd, sooner or later. Ah. Uh-huh. 
Well, I've wrestled with reality for 35 years, Doctor, and I'm happy to state I finally won out over it. Oh, Doctor, I... I you, you know, years ago, my mother used to say to me, she'd say, in this world, Elwood, you must be... She always called me Elwood. In this world, Elwood, you must be oh so smart or oh so pleasant. Well, for years I was smart. I recommend pleasant. You may quote me. Yes. Some of the best lines, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there were quite, there's a couple more that I could have put in there. I mean, there's there's one particular scene where he recounts how he first met Harvey. Yeah. Where he goes, it, it's essentially, and on, when I was watching the film, I was like, okay, this is the clip they would have used in the Oscar <coughs> ceremony when they said, and James Stewart for best actor, because it's just it's just him in an in like yeah. in a back alley talking, and it's just you just engaged and hanging on to every word this guy says because yeah. the doctor's almost like trying to trip him up isn't he he's trying to say so it was your, what's your dad's name yeah yeah John <laughs> what's your best friend's name Vern <laughs> that final quote the in this world Elwood quote we actually had that on the yeah. Facebook page someone uh, someone sent it to us as one of their favourite bits of the film yeah. was, uh, so Katie pleasant. Reynolds yeah. thank you for that Katie. yeah that is a good line isn't it oh yeah it's yeah, true yeah. though isn't it be oh, so, you could be oh, so, so smart, smart or, or oh, so pleasant, pleasant. Sean, any thoughts of, on Harvey? Yeah, yeah, I've really enjoyed it. I mean, I haven't seen it recently. I watched it, I think, on TV when I was um, when I was a kid, and I seem to remember I enjoyed it. Um, I can't really remember any outstanding scenes for me, really. Probably, oh, yeah. I, I, pro- pro- I probably need to see it again. But um, yeah, I, I, I sort of as a child. So I would say that yeah, an enjoyable movie from what I remember. So, so I can't really comment. Directed, terrific amounts. Uh, directed by Henry Custer, the guy that did The Bishop's Wife that we uh, talked about. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he also did two Richard Burton films. He did Richard Burton's first film in Hollywood, uh, My Cousin Rachel, and, and he did, he did the, Road. the Road. Yes, he did. Mm. Oh, cool. So when I looked at his list of films he'd done, a huge list of films, but not all of them very well known now. Oh, yeah? I think they might have been popular at the time, but they just sort of disappeared from our consciousness. But well, well nice that's what we exist for. <laughs> yeah. really nice that's musical. what we exist for, to I, give people like, what's his name, Henry Custer? Mm. Henry Custer. Henry, yeah. Henry yeah. Custer, the, the respect and the recognition that he deserves. Mm. Yeah. And see nice. the flower drum song because it's a lovely little musical. <laughs> yeah, which he directed, which seems to get forgotten. Isn't there a famous portrait though of, of Harvey that seems to be whenever Harvey's mentioned, there's like Harvey with him sat there with the with the giant yeah. rabbit right well, next yeah, to him? Because because as I said, I said in the introduction, it's one of these films. Like I said after Rebecca last week, it's another film in which the title character is never seen. But you see a bit. There's this bit where James Stewart walks into the house with this portrait, and it's essentially a portrait of him with Harvey. That's it. That's so, the one, yeah. so I think that's, that's probably like the kind of cheat. And the, and I love the way that they play it for the first, for I think probably for the first hour of the film, you're not sure whether. James Stewart is actually sort of going off his mind and they seem to they keep harking back to what his life used to be like I used to, you keep wondering what happened to make him invent this character and yeah, did he have it. a breakdown or something yeah did he have a breakdown I think after a while you don't really care he was a drinker <laughs> yeah, yeah because they try and blame it on his drink because he goes down to Charlie's place every day but when he goes in everyone they goes hello you know hello Albert hello Harvey don't they they greet them both they yeah. are always there together he serves them well, two drinks well both. I think I think the barman does probably because of how much money he spends yeah. in the place but like like uh, the first thing when he goes into Charlie's place, there's just this guy in the background who keeps peering around and looking over his shoulder <laughs> and wondering what the heck's going on, and then eventually just gets up and walks out of the bar because he's like, "I'm not, I'm not drinking beside this guy. This guy's he's lost it. He's he's off his rocker." 
Uh, I think, yeah, James Stewart's performance is quite a nuanced performance, isn't it? It's, it's, it's very, yeah. It's, there's a lot to it. You think he's just been amiable and a bit daft, but he's actually, there's a lot to it. And I think his foil in this film is Josephine Hill, who plays his sister. Oh, yeah, She actually yeah. won the Academy Award for Best for Supporting Actress. For Best Supporting Actress, actress yeah. But sometimes you think hers is a little bit slightly over the top, but it balances his, where he's sort of really underplayed. She's sort of slightly overplayed. Yeah. There's this classic scene where they have a, a soprano singer come to a party, and she's sort of, she sort of hops, for button of a better word, and she sort of vibrates all over. And you can see that Josephine Hill was looking at her and she doesn't say a word, but she's just in she's just finding it excruciating watching this woman sort of tremble. <laughs> because they're kind of because they're sort of a high society family. So so Elwood P. Dow, that's James Stewart's character, is a bit of an embarrassment to them because yeah, they try they, to do everything to stop him going to the party, don't they? To yeah. get not so he doesn't appear. Was this originally a stage play? Like yes, a it play? was. Yeah. It was it was a play. Yeah. Pulitzer Prize winning play as Pulitzer, well. Wow. Mm. Which is still being which is I think one of the more more recent versions of the play actually had Sheldon from the Big Bang Theory playing the character of Elwood. Really? Yes, they've done a yeah, they've yeah. done a revival of it. Could so, you uh, could you imagine a modern movie about someone who may or may not be going crazy and talking to an imaginary figure doing well at the Oscars these days? Oh, it just won Best Picture, picture. didn't it? Oh yes, <laughs> that is so oh, good. Yeah, it's yeah. very reminiscent of Birdman. <laughs> oh, I think it's the other way around. Actually, Rabbit Man. <laughs> <laughs> but it's um, yeah, but also, also, but then the, there's the bit, the whole section of the film, which where they try and have him committed. They try to have it committed to uh to an asylum, and that bit I thought I thought that the film actually went a little bit into some sort of social commentary and satire, like the fact that his sister takes him in to be to be um to be committed, but it seems that purely because of the I think the film doesn't try and make it ambiguous that it's purely because of the fact that she's a woman. She ends up being the one that's actually yeah, committed they think to the she's hospital. Hysterical, don't they? they think she's hysterical and she's crazy, and it's like, oh, obviously the man wouldn't be, and uh, obviously it must be the woman. Because she admits that sometimes up. she could see Harvey herself. She says, you know what? Sometimes I even see him, and they think, right, you're the nuts. You're going. You're <laughs> being. We're going to give you an ice bath. Yeah, <laughs> gonna we're going to give you an you ice up. bath. We're going to lock you up, and we're just, and it's, uh, it's just for, uh, I, I just thought I thought that was quite funny, and um, well. It was a bit dark, actually. It was it was a bit upsetting when, when I was watching it. Thankfully, everything works out. Mm. Uh, and but the taxi driver. There's a taxi driver scene where at the end she sits. Alward's been taken into the asylum, and they're going to give him this injection, which apparently is going to be the cure or It's going to make him come to his senses, oh, yeah, and he's yeah. not going to be able to see Harvey anymore. And the taxi driver said, "You know what?" People, I know, I'll have the tip now. Serum nine seven seven. Yeah, because you know, people when they come in, they smile at me. They post the time of day. They they're really happy and they're joyful. They go in, but when they come back, they're normal again. And you know what? You know, awful people they are. So he sort of wakes her up to say, you know what? He's happy. He's enjoying his life. Doesn't it really matter if his best friend's a rabbit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that you can't see, or you can sometimes see. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Because yeah, because it's even the way he, the way the taxi driver says, he says something like, um, "It's like when they come out, they're normal human beings, yeah. and you know what horrible people they are." Yeah. What stinkers they are, or something. Yeah. Isn't yeah. It? So yeah. he's just sort of saying like, as ho- human beings are horrible. Yeah. If a if a um if a six foot rabbit makes you a better person, I'm all for it. Yeah. <laughs> more or less. Embrace the rabbit. <laughs> Embrace the rabbit. <laughs> we should put that on a t-shirt. Embrace the rabbit. <laughs> But I think the film, uh, I think the film is actually it's a masterclass in understated acting. Like not just from James Stewart, but everybody. I mean, the performances. There's the 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 because you have the the doctor who does all the who looks at all the patients that come to the yeah. asylum and the nurse. 
like i think her performance is actually just really really subtly calibrated so she's not like fawning over herself or making eyes at the doctor but you can see you, you tell straight away, okay there's a history here yeah, there's something, something that she on. wants from him and i just i just thought the film was great mm. i just i thought i thought the it's a, it's i guess you could say a slight story there isn't much to it but the performances <laughs> carry the whole thing and just make it great yeah you could see if it was on stage it'd probably be have two sets wouldn't it Maybe oh, yeah. three. You'd yeah, probably yeah. have Charlie's, you'd have the house, and you'd have the hosti asylum. Yeah, and yeah. you think yeah. that probably would work. Yeah, it, it would totally work. But would totally yeah, work. yeah, I just love it. I, yeah. I've, saw, I've seen it as a child, and I've seen it as an adult many times, and I just, yeah, again, it's like, embrace the rabbit. Love it. <laughs> 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 oh, man, this is a bit like... This is a bit like the the time when we spoke about Scrooge and Sean. You were saying that 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 film sort of encapsulates your life philosophy. That I like life <laughs> and life, yeah. No, no, I did. I mean, those feel good films, and it is. It's uh, it's one of those feel good films. And and, and I, my outlook, I think, is a little bit like that on life. I like to think, well, you know, you've got to enjoy it. Each day's a each day's a bonus. So, you know, it's uh, yeah. It's it, I remember it as being a really really feel good movie. And you know, I mean, is he? I don't know. James James Stewart is is a good actor. There's there's no doubt about it, and he just plays it plays his part excellently. Yeah. So what's uh, Sean? What is your six foot three and a half inch rabbit in life? My my life's probably Joe. <laughs> 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 yeah, Joe. I would think five foot five foot nine. <laughs> <laughs> but he's only five foot nine. But hey, I stick a couple of big big ears on him. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Can't stop that. Well, yeah, no, no, you, re- you really, really, really can't. You really, really can't. And um, right, so yeah, and I'll, I'll just say one other thing is Dr. Chumley, the his drunk walk. I have, I, I just adored. <laughs> There's this scene where he walks in and he thinks he's beginning to see Harvey, and obviously because he, and the way he just sort of walks into the and it's like he walks and keeps looking over his shoulder. I'm like, this is genius. These guys are so good. They're so good. It's, oh no, it's there was something else I was gonna say, but I cannot remember. But I would say yes, bona fide classic Harvey. It was James Stewart. I think it was. He says it was his favorite film of his mm-hmm. that he that he was in. Like, oh yeah, that was it. And I think like because even because James Stewart had such a quality about him, so sort of every man likable. He could be a drunk, but you would still like him. Quality that I think the only person that we have today that comes even close to that is Tom Hanks. That's sort of every man, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, and f- fully enough, I was I was watching and going, if this film was made again today, who would play? It would probably be Tom Hanks. Then to find out that they've been trying to make a remake for a couple of years now with Steven Spielberg, and he's sort of like lined up Tom Hanks, but it keeps going wrong. Mm. And uh, a bit of me thinks they shouldn't even bother, just leave it alone. Yeah, some sometimes I think those those classic films are best left alone. I think they remade it as Donnie Darko, didn't they? <laughs> With it a was slightly darker right, twist. It was <laughs> it was definitely definitely influenced. I would say. I would say definitely influenced, but it's all the worse because you can actually see the rabbit in that film. Sure. All right, cool. Every week we have uh, Sharon. Thank you for that. <laughs> um, uh, we have a quiz. Where? Sh- J- not. J- J- I was going to say John. John. You can call me John if you Jean. like. Jean. Jean. It's some, some sort of amalgam of Joe and Sean, where Joe, Joe comes up with a couple of clues about a classic Hollywood legend. And so, Joe, would you like to give us our first clue this week? Okay. Before making it big in the movies, this screen legend wrote and acted for the stage. One of the plays written by this screen legend actually got them arrested in 1926. It landed them in jail for 10 days 
on charges of obscenity. Ooh. That sounds familiar. Well, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds familiar. It wasn't me. Yeah. Oh, right, right. right. <laughs> it does. That, is that sound familiar? I think I... All right, cool. Anyway, we shall see. We shall move on and we shall get a couple more clues from Joe as we go along. Play along in the hospital as you're listening or online. See whether you can figure it out before the end of the show. Thanks, Joe. And uh, now, um, Joe started a series last week, uh, which was talking about the great Hollywood composers. And that was uh, last week. We We actually had the Alamo, which was a patient choice of the first film that they'd ever seen in the cinema. The composer of who was uh, the composer for the Alamo was Dimitri Tiomkin, and this week Joe has gotten all inspired all over again, and he's done another one on Mister Dimitri Tiomkin. And here is Joe's, what would you call it, Joe? Tribute? Feature? Feature? Okay. Welcome back to The Pictures. Each week, we're celebrating one of Hollywood's greatest composers, and tonight, we're standing in awe of a true movie maestro, the giant, Dimitri Tiomkin. There we are. Holy cat, what a weird looking thing. Let me get a picture before you track up the whole place. The Thing from Another World is not a typical Tiomkin score. It's cold and severe, but it was one of many collaborations with filmmaking legend Howard Hawks. Indeed, the trust that filmmaking legends such as Hawks, Capra and Hitchcock placed in Tiomkin resulted in some of cinema's greatest creative partnerships and some of the most rousing themes the Western genre ever knew. And yet it was way back in 1937 when a young Dimitri started to shine, first with his score to Lost Horizon. Gentlemen, I give you a toast. Here's my hope that Robert Conway will find his Shangri-La. Here's my hope that we all find our Shangri-La. And then, two years later, with the Hawks classic, Only Angels Have Wings. Yeah, well, she's not so far out to sea as you think. Hawks? The boat. Hey, kid. Yeah? Put some more gas in number seven. Call up Santa Maria and have them hold the boat until we get there. Where's your luggage? Where is it? Over there. Good. Hey, Charlie. Well, what are you waiting for, kid? Boat doesn't stop at Santa Maria this trip. Why not? They have no bananas. They have no bananas? Yes, they have no bananas. Although he continued to work with these masters of cinema throughout his career, in 1943, he received the call from another master. Hello? 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 Tumpkin found himself composer of choice on four Hitchcock movies, beginning with Hello. Shadow of a Doubt, and culminating in 1954 Hello. with the nerve-shredding score for Dial M for Murder. Hello. In 
Interestingly though, for a Russian-born composer, it was his music for the old American West that really caught people's imagination. With 16 nominations, Tiomkin managed to take home four Oscars. Here's Walt Disney on stage in 1953. And the winner is... Dmitry Tiomkin for High Nose. Having written so many favourites, it wasn't unusual to see the composer on TV talking about his work. But seriously, Dimitri, how did you uh, start composing? I really don't start composing at the beginning. I start improvising. It was in old silent days of silent movies. Where? In uh, St. Petersburg. St. Petersburg? Yeah. The Tiomkin trademark consisted of highly memorable tunes and good old patriotic pride. It will come as no surprise to learn that after the 1917 communist revolution in Russia, Tiomkin spent his early years as a staff composer for the Red Army, writing similarly powerful scores for revolutionary mass spectacles. Now, Dimitri, it's strange that you, who've spent so many years in foreign countries, can capture the flavor of the American people so exactly. You know, people ask me the same question over and over again. And really, I must tell you honestly that my answer is that American people who inspire me to write this Western music. Even in the later years of his career, Tiomkin provided huge scores for the fall of the Roman Empire and the Charlton Heston epic, 55 Days at Peking. You know, Dimitri, as the dean of all of our composers for the screen, what one thing do you owe your success to? I must tell you sincerely that if I may obtain certain success, I attribute this success to this great, wonderful land where I live, and this wonderful people with whom I have great luck to be associated for so many years. We've heard from the man himself, but just look at this filmography. Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, It's a Wonderful Life, Duel in the Sun, Red River, Strangers on a Train, High Noon, Land of the Pharaohs, The Old Man in the Sea, Rio Bravo, the guns of Navarone, and this, the score to George Stevens' giant. The man's influence on cinema is tremendous. Gifted, prolific, and well-loved composer, Dmitry Tionkin stands as one of the true giants of the movies.
consider yourself educated. Thanks, Joe. That was great. <laughs> so it's uh, so you were saying last week you went on a little bit of a mini rant about how um, composers don't get the recognition that they deserve because they're not looked as like film composers are not looked as as real composers. They look at just film composers, so to say. And um, but Dimitri Onkin, he you, he well, he was going on talk shows and everything like that. He seemed to receive quite a level of celebrity so that, um, or recognition for what he did. Yeah, he was one of the ones that sort of became a, a name that people knew, mainly because a lot of his film scores were turned into songs. All right. Um, obviously, you know, uh, do not forsake me, oh my... I mean, that was something that people were singing. It wasn't just a film score. It was a song that made it big outside of the movie itself. Uh, interestingly, uh, Bernard Herrmann, another fantastic composer, never really had a song that made it... a, a, a film theme that made it big as a song. Um, and I think that kind of was, was an issue when people were choosing him to score their, their movies. They wanted a song to go with it. And I actually heard for the first time recently the score to Marnie was actually turned into a song, which, which I never I never knew when I heard it, and it was absolutely terrible. So that was Bernard, <laughs> Bernard Herrmann's attempt to, to do that, and it never quite, never quite Joe, worked out. Well, the score was terrible or the song was no, the terrible? The score was fantastic, but when you try and turn a Bernard Herrmann Hitchcock score into a song... It doesn't work, and I, I don't feel that it did work. But that was why Dimitri Chomkin achieved a certain amount of fame at the time, because his songs were being sung outside of outside of cinemas. People were sort of humming them. Okay, Sean, you wanted to say something. I was just saying that um, I've, I've forgotten my train of thought now. Um, yeah, it's no, I've, I've forgotten. Sorry. Okay, no. cool. we'll, we'll come back to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll, yeah, yeah. Hold on, we'll, we'll come back to that. But uh, so we don't just put this together, but also now the film that Joe has chosen this week features Mr. Tiomkin. So, Joe, what have you chosen this week as a bona fide classic for us to do? This is my um, this is my Casablanca, really. A lot of people love Casablanca. They think it's one of the greatest movies of all time. I like it. That's about as far as I'll go with it. However, Only Angels Have Wings, for me, is just such a wonderful film. A 1939 film directed by Howard Hawks. Uh, I mentioned it there in the, the piece on uh, Tiomkin. It's one of those movies that you want to you want to live inside, really. It's about a, a South American trading port, a place called Barranca. Uh, and if anyone listened to some of the animations from the 1930s, there's an there's a gag. The cartoons that have like pilots going calling Barranca, calling Barranca. It comes from this film. It's about this South American trading port, um, which uh, where Cary Grant uh, runs a freight company, an air freight company. From it's very difficult to land. Um, the plane in in this place they have to uh, negotiate the the mountains and this massive drop and, and the pilots risk their lives every day to get this this freight to and from uh, the, the the airport and they also do post um, and it's basically the the things that go on there the girls that come in and out of his life ones that he's met before and 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 the sort of life that they lead it's it's a fantastic little film really really brilliant Okay, so talking about Tian Kim's mu music, because I've got I've got a question to ask you about this because there isn't much music in this film. No, but he still gets a credit for writing the score, doing the music. Mm. But here is probably the most prominent musical moment from the film. Um, you, if you recognize the voices, that is Cary Grant and Gene Arthur who are uh, who star in the film. Will you will you go away, please? We'll get it. We'll get it. You want to hear how it really goes? Sure. Move over. You better be good. Don't be as corny as you. All right, boys, you take the pickup with the horn. Make it nice and slow and easy. First of you, watch for the brakes. Ready now? Here we go.
So yes, that was um, Jean Arthur. What uh, character was it? Bonnie Lee. Uh, yeah, that's right. That's the one. The one yep. that, that steps off the boat uh, fairly near the beginning of the film and ends up falling in love with Cary Grant. As as you do. As I certainly <laughs> would. Yeah. As you do, Cary Grant, the man who could make a woman get pregnant just by looking at her. Judy, Judy, Judy. <laughs> he never actually said that in the yes, film. It's yeah. a very common misconception. Yeah, I don't know, because the film really seemed to have gone into public consciousness, or at least contemporary consciousness at the time when it was made, because you have things like the Colin Barranca, you have mm. things like the Judy, Judy, Judy thing, which mm. seem to seem to be like one of those things that <laughs> followed Cary Grant around, and you spoke about Casablanca, mm. a bit like Play It Against Sam. Yeah, we'll always have Paris. Yeah, yeah, Play It Against Sam followed Followed Hugh uh, Humphrey Bogart around, even though a he never said that it was a and it was actually a misquote of a line that he didn't say in the film. That's right, play it, Sam, and she said it. Yeah, and uh, so yeah, but it, it seems to have entered public consciousness like that. But I think it's funny that you you because I saw this last night as well. Mm. Uh, yeah, I didn't sleep much, but <laughs> but it's like it's like what you were saying about it being your own, your Casablanca. I think that's that's quite funny because. The thing about the film is I feel like it feels almost sort of European. Mm. It's got that wonderful, it's South American, but I know what you mean. It's kind yeah. of like a, a, a different place and a different world. And that's why, it, for me, it, it captures something different that a lot of films around the time didn't. Well, yeah, because the thing is, it's, it's essentially, you know, you were talking about Harvey, Sh mm -hmm. um, Sharon, and you were saying about if it was on stage, you could only use three locations. Yeah. This film is largely in one location. Pretty much, it's, yeah. It's largely in <coughs> one bar, and it's just people just keep coming out going, they, they might go to a room, they might go, um, you might walk along the front where the, where the ships come in, there might, there's a couple of shots and planes, yeah. but it's largely in one location, mm -hmm. there's no music. It's very sort of like, um, if you'll excuse me, if I can just go, a, if you allow me to go a little bit film theory here, it's there's something very Italian neorealism about it, apart from the fact that it's shot on a stage. But it's kind of like, it's sort of like, it's a mixture of Hollywood and that kind of like European sensibility of we just want to be here and be in this moment. Mm. And the plot isn't that really, the plot isn't really important. But it's what's going on in, the, in these people's lives. That's yeah. what I like about it. It is very insular, and you, it is a snapshot into this little place in this particular area with these particular people. You join them halfway through their lives. You leave them a couple of hours later on. Yeah. Things have happened. Some people have, have changed. Not a lot really has happened. Things carry on, and you're just lucky to be with them for that little bit of time. That's why you like Rear Window as well. I, I guess. Yeah, very yeah, I, similar. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a bit of a theme running here. Look at you. People's lives. Jean Arthur's great, but she's <laughs> no Grace Kelly. Well, <laughs> no, but, oh, okay, I'm sorry, but I'll take Jean Arthur's voice any day mm. over Grace Kelly. I think she'd have something to say about that. Jean, Jean Arthur, <laughs> what a voice. I mean, hear that bit of where she goes like, you want to see how it's really played? I just love it. She has this sort of husky yeah. kind of, I'm just kind of like, dang, that's a voice. That's mm. a vo and she was kind of like the screwball comedy queen. <laughs> but mm. yeah. She, uh, she was brilliant. And also, one other thing I have to say about this is it was made in, what, 1938, was it? Uh, th uh, it was 1939, actually, it was oh. released. So it was released in 1939, and it's... So obviously, they didn't have as much... They didn't have the technology to film aerial shots the way we do nowadays and all that. But still, the, the aerial shots are nerve-wracking. There's a fantastic <laughs> shot where a plane's coming into land, and they, they track with this plane. It's flying through the mountains. They stay on the plane. They stay on it. It gets closer to the ground. They follow it down until the wheels hit the tarmac. And it's one long, uninterrupted shot. And at that time, that would have been a really difficult shot to pull off. Yeah. 
<clears throat> I mean, even even the times when you, they're obviously using back projection and all that kind of stuff to make you think, okay, this plane is flying through like a whole bunch of mountains. It's still nerve wracking, just the way it's cut and the tension and what's going to happen. And and there's and the whole film has a, it has this sort of sense of dread with all these pilots. Where I don't know about you, Joe, but I just kind of felt. It's they're all doomed. Mm, yeah, <laughs> they're, they're all doomed. But without they, giving away any spoilers, I mean, they are some of them. It yeah, it doesn't it, end well for some of those pilots, and they just carry on. But the thing is, like, they all—it's like they're all doomed. <clears throat> they're all eventually going to die in yeah. a plane. They all know that, and it's kind of like water over ducks back. Who's yeah. Joe? Yeah, exactly. That, that's, that's what they actually say. A guy dies. They all just kind of go like, yeah, whatever. And Ginatha's kind of like, what? But he's dead. Don't you understand? They and, even eat his dinner. Yeah, like he'd, he'd oh, my word. Okay, spoiler, spoiler alert. Because he wants to have dinner with Gene Arthur before he gets this job. So he's he's ordered a steak and he says, okay, I'm going to take off and I'm going to come back and have the steak with you. But he takes off and after he takes off, the weather gets really, really bad. They say, you can't land, come back in. And they say, look, it's too bad. You can't land. Keep circling for three hours. He's like, what? But she's going to be gone in three hours. Don't worry. I can land it. I can land it. I can land it. And it's kind of like they're sort of young, dumb and full of whatever. And he comes Fun. in. Yeah, comes in, crashes it. He dies and they just kind of go, oh, well. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Who's Joe? Up. Hey, have another and, drink. And, and they're like, what, what are we going to do about Joe? And they're all like, who's Joe? And they all just sort of ignore the fact that it's like they've accepted that if you're going to do this job, we are probably going to. No, it's probably not going to end well for us. And we're going to eat your steak. Yeah, and they. But they. That's what they've done. And if anybody does anything heroic, they ignore it. It's just the job. It's just what they do. Sort of reminiscent of later war films where you see them in the RAF mess, don't you? Where they say someone's bought it, and then they just carry on as if you know that's just part of life. Is it? Well, the so. uh, an interesting thing was that it was this film was going to be um, entered into the. First Cannes Film Festival, I think it was, oh, wow. which was going to be September the first, nineteen thirty-nine, but obviously the war delayed so it. The something festival. happened on that date. <laughs> yeah, the war <laughs> delayed it by seven years, so it would it was never entered, but it was going to be in the first one. Oh, cool. yeah. Can, can we just say something about the director? Because I what, think Howard the director's meant. I think he deserves we, we, some we, sort of mention. Okay. I, yeah. So I mean, I mean, some great films. I mean, there was an Errol Flynn film called The Dawn Patrol, terrific movie. <laughs> Um, which was was First World War, First World War planes, and and that would that that ran along the same lines. It was basically Errol Flynn was this squadron leader, and eventually all his all his pilots died. So on the last the last mission, he decides to take on his own. You know, it's a, a pointless mission, but that's the whole story is the different pilots that come and go, and so I guess he must must. That, that's a really good film, and and some great westerns he's done. Rio Bravo, <laughs> yeah, and the Big Sky, yeah. So so. And the Paul Mooney Scarface as well, I think. Right back in in the yeah. early days. Well, yeah. that's what I mean. So, <clears throat> so thirty two. His career was really, really early. And when you make uh, to have and have not and follow it up with the big sleep, sleep yeah. you know you're you're a pretty good director. That's Although it. he never won an Oscar for directing. No, Howard Hawks never won an Oscar for directing, oh, and yet he's famous. And yet he's one of the yeah. Mm. Okay, um, uh, this it's it's um it's confession time. I always get him confused with Howard Hughes. Oh dear! <laughs> yeah, so I, I always get so, so they are illiterative. They are illiterative, aren't they? How would he use Howard Hawks? One of them should have changed their name just to help me out. Uh, <laughs> I'm um, trying to be a film buff here. <laughs> well, there's the, there's the um, fantastic uh, Hell's Angels by Howard Hughes, which was which was doing aerial photography on a massive scale a long that's time yeah. before. And they they, they, that's, they that's do a good amazing. job of bringing sort of showing you that in the Aviator. I think some people died. In, they died in. I in think it movie. was just in, went on in forever. The original Hell's Angels. Yeah. 
Okay, well, thank you very much for that. We are zooming through this hour. I mean, I think each Harvey only angels have wings. I think we could do whole shows on just them. Can I just ask Tozin, what did you think of Only Angels Have Wings? Because uh, if you saw it for the first time last night, as someone that's lived with this film for years and loves it, I'd be very interested to know what you thought. I thought it was good. I thought it was good. I think it's a it's a kind of film that not everybody will warm to, because there because it's all in one location and because there's really no plot and there's no real driving. This is what we're trying to achieve, and just sitting there with the characters. I think it's a kind of thing that I actually think that there's some people who would switch the film off after thirty minutes and go, "Let me at him," <laughs> and go, "What's going on? What's happening? What is it? Uh, 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 I, I don't get it. Be what's going on in the yeah? Right because house. It, it really does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it it does it does slow down, but I quite like it. I think it's one of those films that if you if you if you give it time and you stick with it after you finish, you think actually this is actually a good film because it's it's about being in a moment, which doesn't really work for everybody. I don't think. I think I think it's the kind of film that has to be given time, and some people would have to get over things in the beginning of the film. But it's a very good film. Ah, okay, interesting, very interesting. <laughs> Those are all basically the reasons why I like it. <laughs> okay, cool. And now. Second clue, Joe. Okay, if you haven't got it so far, this could be the one that gives it away. This Screen Legends films are credited with single-handedly saving the failing and debt-ridden Paramount Pictures from bankruptcy in the early 1930s. So I've given you an era. Yeah. Um, Paramount obviously had an awful lot to do with this Screen Legend, and this particular Screen Legend is supposedly the reason why Paramount survived and why we have Paramount today, whether that's a good thing or not. Well, Indiana Jones, that's enough for them to be good for <laughs> some time ago. Yeah. All right. Okay, cool. We will come back to that, and now we shall carry on. Okay. Now, technology is largely here to help us, at least that's what we're told, but it seemingly picks the weirdest and most inopportune moments to stab you in the back. All this is to apologize that I was not able to make it into the hospital today as my sound recorder decided it fancied a break. No problem, I thought. I had a great interview from John in a ward a couple of weeks ago, and he told me about his favorite movie. But then the card on which it was recorded decided not to talk to the computer. So we have no patient recording this week, but I'd like to give a very big shout out to Caleb and Chloe Smith in the children's ward who were admitted in today. Guys, I promised you that I would mention you in the radio, and there it is. I have mentioned you. Is that Caleb and... Chloe Smith. Hello, Chloe. Hello, Caleb. Yeah, yeah. Chloe is Caleb's mum, and Caleb has just been his. Uh, I think the last I heard it was he was going on an IV, and I might be here over the weekend. So, um, Caleb, I'll come see you, and I'll bring you a, a cookie. Yeah, it's not if, such a bad place. Yeah, if if I'm allowed, <laughs> if I'm allowed, just remember it's all a holiday, and you'll be back home soon. Um, yeah. So all you really have my word about this film is that John definitely said that this was his favorite movie of all time. We interrupt this program to give you a bulletin just received from one of our naval units at sea. A large object traveling at supersonic speed is headed over the North Atlantic toward the east coast of the United States. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Drew Pearson. We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon, the arrival of a space ship in Washington. The Army has taken every precaution to meet any emergency which may develop. Just a minute, 
Ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. But if you threaten to extend your violence, this earth of yours will be reduced to a burned-out cinder. But he's a robot. Without you, what could he do? There's no limit to what he could do. He could destroy the earth. All vehicles, close in. Let's go. Yes, that is it. The day the Earth stood still. And now I shall hand over to our 1960s science <laughs> fiction expert. <laughs> yeah, the day the Earth stood still. What a great film. Bernard oh, we Herman. About the other. Yeah, Bernard. Wow. About, so you like that. Great score. Um, yeah, no, this, this this goes on from what we were talking about last week. Uh, I think it was two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, sorry. Yeah, um, Yeah. With, with that sci-fi era, Cold War stuff. And uh, this was a great film because when the spaceship lands, I think one of the, the iconic moments is when uh, Michael Rennie plays Klaatu, good actor, I think, and he comes out of the spaceship. He's got like an, Ep- I, I always think of it as like, well, from what I can remember, like a, almost an Epcot space helmet type thing. Mm-hmm. And then... Very daft punk. Yeah, very daft punk yeah. indeed. Or and just then daft. all the military turn up, all the military turn up like they, they generally do in these things, tanks and stuff, and out comes Gort, the big robot. The big robot, the big Cyclops robot. Where they go, and there's a little visor comes up and goes... <laughs> And then just melts all the tanks, destroys all the tanks, just to give a, a demonstration. Yeah, it's it, this is one of the one of the great sci-fi films. And then what of does that era. what does Keanu Reeves do then? <laughs> <laughs> yes, pointing out the fact that this was remade a couple of years back, and I, I think it's fair to say that the remake is not going to live as long in the memory as I think the... it's dead already. <laughs> I think uh, so. Yeah. Was it? Yeah, did you like so. it? Uh, it was all right. I didn't think it was as <clears throat> bad as everybody said, but. Um, this was definitely, you know, I, I think, far it, was, I think it was one of those ones where people were just so annoyed that they dared Did, to go near a classic. Yeah, not really classic. <laughs> and so the film was dead in the water the second before yeah. anything happened. They're just kind of like, how dare you? you? You see, also, I think those films in black and white, I mean, I think black and white really wor- works for certain films. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, and it just seems to. Uh, gives it an eerie, surreal atmosphere. Yeah. Okay, because <coughs> actually, having said that, I mean, all three films we've spoken about this week were all in black and white. And yeah. I remember watching them and thinking, I don't, I can't imagine this in color. Like Harvey, I cannot imagine it in color. I, I can't imagine only angels have wings in color. No, <laughs> I, just, no. I just can't. The, the, 
that's that's it really. I think they've they've tried to cut her in a few old black and white films. I saw um again, but we're back to Errol Flynn, the Seahawk once. I saw a, a the original was black and white and I saw a, a coloured version of it where they yeah. now with computers the yeah, way yeah, they can go, they they sort of pick one colour and then and I'm like, No, it's sort of, <laughs> You've ruined it. Yet? You've ruined it. It's so. it's gonna I mean even a couple of years back they made the artist the black and white movie. Yeah. Black and white silent movie. And on the D V D for that they have all these extras of them on sit on set like doing all the day and doing the dance scenes and it's all in color and it just looks wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It just, it just like, yeah. why, why is it in color? Why? Yeah. No. It doesn't work. I think I, it's the way the shadows work, isn't it? That yeah. it's just, yeah. Big, I, and it adds that menace that you don't feel when it's pretty. Good it. old German expressionism. Yeah. I think <laughs> the artist is, is a, was a great movie. I, I think I saw that about three times. Well, I enjoyed, I enjoyed it so much. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. The list of films that have been colorized is just ridiculous. I'm looking oh, at it now. Yeah. Everything. They colorized Casablanca. No. They colorized Bringing Up Baby. They what? Colorized, I know, I know. Who would buy that? <laughs> who, would, who would watch it? Who even, would want to watch it? I know. Though? Even Dark Passage was colorized in 1990. It's called Dark Passage. <laughs> For goodness <laughs> sake. I, I remember uh, this is this is TV, but I remember seeing the the, the World War in colour, and oh, it's yeah, like yeah, you know yeah. that one. You thought, oh, more colour bloody footage. than you. I oh, know there was a little bit, a small amount of coloured footage, but I mean, it's like the whole. I thought I've seen. Surely I've seen this on the mm. on another program, but it was black and white, so it was better. It was better, yeah. <laughs> the war was better in black and it white. Was better. <laughs> but, but this film is 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 a great film. I'm sure most people would have seen this as well. Yeah, I think uh, extremely influential uh, because Klatu Baraka Nikto, that Ooh. Army of Darkness. What, was it? Was he used in Army of Darkness? Yeah, he's using Evil Dead. It's what he has to say to open the portal <laughs> to get rid of the zombies. <laughs> I, think, I think because doesn't he? Isn't he also used in Star Wars? Is there's it? there's some in I think in Return of the Jedi there's um there's three of Jabba's um cronies whose names are Klatu, Baraka and Nikto. That is <laughs> excellent. So yeah, everyone just sort of loved the film, but true. Yeah, definite classic. Well done, John. Well done for picking that. And you're probably out of the hospital now, but if somehow you hear this online or something like that, just want to say I hope the leg is better, um, or it's I hope you're dealing with it well. And uh, so Joe. Okay, third clue. All this is, is a quote from this movie legend. Um, something that they say about themselves. I sometimes throw those in to help you get into the mindset of who this person was. Here we go. When I'm good, I'm very good. But when I'm bad, I'm better. Uh, that's, that's, <laughs> oh, thank goodness. <laughs> Is that, has that given it uh, away? Well, it's helped, I think. I hope so. I, I think. I think that's the, that's totally given it away. Clincher. Mm. <laughs> I think that's totally given it away. <laughs> I needed that one. <laughs> All right, cool. Anyway, we're running out of time, so I'm going to move on. Even though I was going to ask, uh, hang on, wait. The, okay, the period for Paramount. You said <coughs> was it the twenties or the thirties? Thirties. Thirties. Thirties when they uh, almost went. Uh, that was all silent, wasn't it? Uh, no, not, no, all. not, not in the 30s, no, not so no, much. No. Well, well, okay. well, Angels Have Wings was 39. And yeah, yeah, but I mean towards the beginning of the 30s. Uh, uh, 1930 was Dawn Patrol. Uh, yeah, no, I think yeah. 30s was, was, the sound was doing pretty well. Pretty okay, well. cool, never mind. Right, cool. So now we have a new, <laughs> we have a new feature this week called I Love Movies. Or I Love Movies. I Love Movies. Depend how you say it. It means different things. So this is where Sharon is going to drudge, uh, is going to go through things and find out 
different films that have a connection to the island. Either they were filmed here or something like that. And if we can't find anything that was that a film that where Hollywood and the island met, we're just going to find something that has to do with an island somewhere. So There's some tenuous links, but there's lots out there, so there's going to be a few to come. But the one I thought to start us off with features an Isle of Wight icon and one of the most famous residents ever was Mrs Brown, in, made in 1997, featuring Dame Judi Dench as good old Queen Victoria. Oh, cool, good. So let's have some music from Mrs Brown. Here we go. Welcome to Mrs. Brown's Boy. She's Mrs. Brown. That's Mrs. Brown. Oh, Mrs. Brown. <laughs> Sharon, I'm guessing from your face that's not what you meant. <laughs> that was different, Mrs. Brown. <laughs> okay, you see now. This oh, my ears have just stopped bleeding. <laughs> Has anyone got a napkin? <laughs> okay, this this is the problem I found because when I typed in Mrs. Brown music <laughs> yeah. into Google, that's what popped up, <laughs> yeah. which which makes me a bit sad that nobody's ever going to find this film randomly again because there's too much BBC stuff in the way of it. So actually, now here's actual music from Stephen Warbeck from the soundtrack of Mrs. Brown. Never this is called again. The Swim. <laughs> Yes, and that was um, The Swim. It's used in a, a, for a scene in the film where Queen Victoria goes for a swim off the off the coast, well, off the beaches of Osborne House, which, as you know, is in Cows and was filmed off the, well, off the show in East Cows. But, Sharon, can you just give us a brief synopsis of Mrs. Brown? And so, sorry, this is not Mrs. Brown, the movie that came out a couple of years ago. This is the Mrs. Brown with Judy Dench and Billy Connolly. Yeah, Mrs. Brown is a nickname that was given to Queen Victoria, um, in to to mock her, it was, it was used specifically where she had a relationship. Well, a relationship. She had a, this one of these intense friendships with her servant, her male servant, her who was called John Brown, and she even had a portrait painted where she sat on a horse and he's holding the horse. And this was like widely circulated, and so people assumed that their relationship was something more than what it was. She developed over the course of her widowhood, she developed these really intense relationships with her male servants. There's mm. like three or four that are recorded where they become really, really close. She was looking at the sort of who Victoria was at this time. She was widowed in her early 40s. And she withdrew completely from public life from over 20 years, mm. where she was in deep mourning. She was left, you know, at a relatively young age with nine children. Mm. And the, her rock, Prince Albert, was suddenly gone, died at age 44, having her caught her an, an illness and died. And so she was in this deep mourning. And then this guy comes along and basically wakes her up out of her mourning, says, you know, woman, <laughs> what are you doing to yourself? He wouldn't want to see you like this. He was a gilly from her Scottish estates in Balmoral. Yeah. So he was like a tough outdoorsman, no nonsense. So he basically took her, shook her up and made her embrace life again. Mm. But to everyone else, they saw this relationship and thought, hello. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is this, you know, is this an innocent relationship 
or or is the queen you know sort of rediscovering her sexuality because yeah. she was quite a sexual woman when you read her diaries she was you know she was quite passionately in love with her husband and oh yeah, yeah, yeah you read accounts where you know he put her stockings on for her and she's always going on about how manly and how wonderful he was and how physically she was really attracted to her husband so she was a physical a sort of sensual woman <laughs> sounds like a victoria 50 shades of gray you just don't think of her that way because we see her permanently as this widow of osborne widow of balmoral yeah. but yeah so this was about that her reawakening yeah so because it was funny because i mean john brown played by billy connolly he billy walks connolly. around calling her woman yeah like he doesn't get, he doesn't call her your highness or anything he just calls her woman <laughs> but it was filmed at Osborne. It was there were scenes filmed at Compton and Freshwater. You see the bit where Billy Connolly and his brother, who's played by Gerard Butler in one of his early screen roles, oh, wow. go swimming. Yeah. And yeah, you see them off the coast of the island. So it was filmed on the island. Another link to the Isle of Wight is that the director John Madden. He he directed this in 1997. He went on to direct Shakespeare in Love and also the Best Exotic Marigold Hotel films. The Celia second Emery. of which with Celia Emery. Yes, so Celia Emery. she's an island president. So another connection to the Isle of Wight. Somebody who so, I'm seriously, seriously hoping we can one day call a friend of the show. Yes, hopefully one day. <laughs> so yeah, there's are there are connections to the Isle of Wight all over. Yay! Yeah. Cool. Oh, thanks for that. That's great. Uh, this because this I remember seeing this film and it was funny because Joe. Uh, Jeffrey Palmer, he, he plays one of the main servants to... Yeah, her Ponsonby, he's her secretary. Yeah, he's a secretary and he's one of the main guys that sort of starts plotting against John Brown because he doesn't like this and he wants to get rid of John yeah. Brown. And it was funny because he also played, he played Judy Dench's husband in the TV show As Time Goes By. Yeah, I did. So I remember when I watched this film thinking, ooh, he's just, he's just annoyed that someone else is moving in on his woman. Yeah. <laughs> it was even more of a shock in Tomorrow Never Dies when, you, yeah, when he yeah. turns up in the opening <laughs> scene and you're like, hang on a minute. <laughs> What's going like, on? You look at Jeffrey Power just sort of like he, he follows Judy Dench around. Follows Judy Dench around and yeah. shows up and <laughs> shows it. <laughs> Judy, on. we want to offer you the role. It's no deal unless Jeffrey Palmer's in it. <laughs> yeah. Unless Done. Jeff comes with me, <laughs> we'll write something for him. <laughs> and but I think Judy Dench is amazing in this film. I mean, just her performance as Queen yeah. Victoria is amazing. I mean, it's it made me it made me want to find out more about it made me quite fond of Queen Victoria without knowing much about her. I made me want to find out more about her, and I got even more fond of her when I found out like what she was like and realized that, as you said, the like her and Albert were were so in love that his death did totally throw her for six, yeah. and she just shut down more or less. Yeah, she shut. And when you go to Osborne, her bed as was left when she died in 1901, his death portrait was on on his pillow, and she slept. <laughs> With the portrait of his like death mask for the rest of her life. Oh, wow! So he was there constantly, and none of his things were put away, none of the things were moved. So she, he, his death was an ever constant presence there. She never wanted to get past that. Yeah. Which is sometimes is that's terrible, <laughs> because you know part of grieving is going through that process where you accept that they're gone. And yeah. I don't think she ever got. And I think her servants who helped her with this is that. They're the ones who made her see, you know, you've got to move on. You've got to embrace living again for your children and for your grandchildren and for your country. And because that's not what Albert would have wanted. As he wouldn't Brown have wanted said. you to, to disappear into this grief. Yeah. And I also think that it's the year in which Judy Yen should have won an Oscar for Best Actress because I just personally thought she was head and shoulders above everybody yeah, else. Yeah, so stunning in that film. Yeah, but it went to Helen Hunt. And as the way these things, if you know anything about the way Oscar works, it's all voted for. And every now and then something will happen where they'll be like, ooh, 
I think we made a mistake there. And then the next year, they'll fix it by giving the Oscar to the person they should have given the Oscar to originally, but for a lesser film. Yeah. So that's... She got it for Shakespeare in Love. Same director. <laughs> yeah. So that's how the next year she shows back up in Shakespeare in Love as another queen, this time Queen Elizabeth. And she won an Oscar for being on screen for eight minutes. So this is a two-hour movie. Judy Jen shows up for eight minutes. Ta-da! Best Supporting Actress Oscar. How does that compare to Hannibal Lecter and Anthony Hopkins? It's not far off, is it? No, I think he's longer. He's <clears throat> something like 20. Is he? Yeah, yeah. He's, 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 a, he's a lot more in the film. But I he... think the closest one to her is uh, for the movie Network. A lady whose name I can't remember, she won Best Supporting Actress for a Network, and she's on screen for about 10 minutes. That's the shortest time ever, is it? Well, no, I think Judy Dench might be the shortest time. It's between Judy Dench and the lady from Network, I think. Can I can I just pipe in there because I haven't said a lot. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I I haven't actually seen this, so yeah. the reason Surely. I haven't seen it is Billy Connolly because yeah. <laughs> Billy Connolly is, he might be a good comedian, but he's destroyed for me. Well, he hasn't destroyed, but he's spoiled most of the films I've been in. He's spoiled the Last Samurai. Um, he's the Hobbit when he was in the Hobbit, and oh, I heard that voice dear. in the Hobbit. I was like. So I can't really comment more than that, except to say, uh, I mean, I don't know if Joe agrees with me here. I do. But I just don't think he's he's particularly good this in acting roles. This film, I think, particularly did suit him. I think this yeah, film suited him. I think this Perhaps film... Perhaps I need to see it then. Yeah, because no, this film, because I only knew him as a comedian, loved him as a comedian, then I saw him in this film and I was like, whoa, he can do other stuff. He's oh. Yeah, he is really, really good as a, as a, as a sort of angry, gruff Scotsman. Yeah, it kind of fits him. <laughs> oh, good lord. Joe, final clue, quickly. Okay, no, right. Okay, during World War II, uh, United States Navy and Army servicemen in the Pacific named their inflatable life vests after this screen legend. That's it. That's it. That's the creature. Yeah, we've all got that, I think. <laughs> I made it, well, not easy, but. The, ex- the inflatable life vests? Yeah, yeah, named after this screen. Because of their certain <laughs> attributes. Yeah. 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 Are we well, ready? That sounded really bad. Okay, cool. Are we ready? Okay. Okay, okay, on three. I, I think I've totally got this wrong now, but on three. One, one two, three. May, May West. West. Yay. Well, yeah, May West. Like the answer West. actually yeah. is... Um, Charlie Chaplin. <laughs> it's May West. Yay, I got it right. They called the inflatable life vest May West? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, have yeah. I guess why? <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Because it rhymes, May West vests... No, totally. all right anyway we're up our time is up here thank you so much for joining us today for listening to us all the way through we wish you good health we pray for great health caleb get better and please remember they do not make them as they used to we leave you with some music playing off from only angels have wings which is gene arthur at the mic another microphone the piano again 